I want to, I want to also challenge you that um, from time to time, even though the building is small here, we told you that if you look at the numbers that are counted each Sunday, they often surprise me too, and we're often over 120 with the kids. Um, because of that, we'll have new faces pop in and maybe be here for three or four services, but if you miss one and that person missed another and the combination of two, you just, I, I've heard it from time to time, who, who are those folks that were there for the first time tonight? And I'm like, oh, they've been here three, four weeks. Um, those of you who are here for community series, that's not just a, a sermon to think, that's some good concepts. It was how the church is supposed to work. So if you see faces you don't recognize, your assignment is not because of New Psalm, but because of your relationship with Christ, is to get to know those folks. Um, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a church of 50 or 5,000. Um, you are going to have certain folks that you'll gravitate towards that you'll spend more time with. Jesus did too with the disciples. And when he got tired of the crowds, they went off together. And, and that's okay. Um, it's not that you're going to have a deep relationship with every single person at New Song as we grow. But it's important that you get to know those in, in your community. The book of Revelation. So, um, I'm trying to repent of my attitude towards preaching on Revelation because I'm starting to enjoy it at the same time. You know, this is not something that really a pastor probably should start out, but I'm just being clear with you. It, it's sometimes a hard book to preach on. When I look through commentaries and I look through online, you, you could, I mean, there's a plethora of opinions about half a dozen things in the book of Revelation, what it means and what they're saying. So, you know, um, and, and many of them reputable. Uh, you know, some I wouldn't put a lot of stock in in their translation of it, but it's just one of those, I think, a lot of ministers and a lot of people, it's easy just to avoid it and say, well, that's the end of the story, and we're heading that way, and I'll find out when we get there. But <laughs> the truth of the matter is, the Scripture says all of it's good for teaching and, and uh, for uh, even correcting us, for admonishing us, uh, building us up. So here we go. We're in part 8, really, um, but we're in chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. And it might be a good idea as we're going through this for me to give a short little recap, at least where we left off before we get in any further. But Jesus is now holding the scroll of destiny, the Father's last will and testament for humanity and the universe. Um, as others put it, literally the, the, deed, the, the deed to the earth. That literally that because Jesus had taken the keys of death, hell, and the grave from Satan, this is the point where it is recognized he holds the deed to the earth and to the destiny of all mankind. And Jesus holding this, uh, last week we looked at the fifth and sixth seal, revealing the martyred saints in heaven, along with the earth and heaven that are being ripped apart by the greatest earthquake to date. Then we see the sun becoming dark, the moon turning blood red, a meteorite shower of unprecedented proportion, and the sky uh, receding like a scroll. This sounds like a good sci-fi movie, right? The only difference is this will be this will be actual events, and and uh, it might throw people off thinking this is some kind of computer-generated thing going on, some big hoax. But it's not going to be. They'll soon find out it won't be a hoax. But for the seventh seal is broken and releasing the seven trumpet judgments, then there's a pause in heaven. For the Lord to seal a special group of believers so they don't experience God's wrath that's about to come. And I'll just give you forewarning on that particular topic of who those saints are. There is great discussion and debate. 
So if you differ in opinion from what I have uh, landed on tonight, it's okay if you feel necessary. We have discussion afterwards. And uh, I'll be more than willing to listen because, uh, again, there are many reputable uh, ministers who hold different opinions on who this is. But in Revelation 7, 1 through 8, I read, of course, from the ESV, which is the paperback books also that we, Bibles that we have in the back of the pews. But the 144,000 of Israel sealed. And after this, I saw four angels, verse 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the seal, the 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from Levi, 12,000 from Ezekiel, 12,000 from Zebulun, 12,000 from Joseph, and 12,000 from Benjamin were sealed. The first thing John sees after the sixth seal is open and judgments are poured out are four angels placed upon four corners of the earth, holding the winds of judgment until these special servants of God are, are sealed. Now, I'm not going to get into what the four corners are. I mean, it's not that they believe that the earth was flat and square. That's not where that's headed. But I can't really explain to you beyond that what we're really talking about, the four corners. Um, I'm sure there are some scholars that have uh, opinions on that as well. But this picture reveals that judgment is on the hands of God God's hands, not Satan's. And that's comforting to know because not only is God uh, uh, a just judge, but he's gracious and merciful also. I was asked recently by a new believer, Pastor CJ, why are we told in Scripture to have a fear of God? I don't understand why we should fear him. And off the cuff, I believe the Holy Spirit helped me with this. It was an analogy came up, and I, I felt I'm usually a little shy on the analogies. Um, but... I sit a lot in the courtrooms, and there's one particular judge in the area that he uh, believes in God, but he is of a completely different belief system than we are on that, but yet he believes there's a God. And so he has a sense of wanting to make sure he's a righteous judge, but if you get on his bad side of the court, the veins start popping out, the face gets stern, and all of a sudden you're fully aware that where you thought he was all nice and friendly, that he's a judge. And he's got a responsibility to bring a righteous judgment. And your idea of righteousness may not match up with his. But judge, I'm sorry I was texting and almost ran over that five-year-old in the school zone, but they shouldn't have been in the street. You know? And he will say, but the law says you aren't supposed to be doing that in the school zone, so whammo, you're nailed, right? And so... The idea is that it's not a fear like being afraid of God like you can't have a relationship with him. It's that you need to understand his righteousness, his majesty, his justice, and don't go in there, go in front of God with the silly idea that he's got to adapt to your way of doing things or your idea of justice, that his is above yours. So you better just conform. 
But they also be loving and gracious and say, you know what? You're sorrowful. You're repentant. You said you won't do it again. You, you, meant, you meant it. Now, in this case, with Jesus involved, he's our advocate. He's paid the price. So when he's our judge, God is our judge, then at that final judgment, and you've been bought by the blood of Jesus, and Jesus says, yes, they deserve death. However, I paid that price. And so they are, they are to be set free. So that's, that's the idea we're seeing here. Uh, that's the idea of that holy fear. And so we're thankful this is God as a judge, not Satan, because he's gracious and merciful also. And King David not only knew of God's judge, justice, but he, al- he also knew his grace and mercy when he sinned in numbering the people, something God expressly forbidden, forbid Israel from doing. So even King David and those, King David, uh, one that God said is a man after his own heart, he messed up a plenty, but God gave him plenty of grace too. So God sent Gad, the prophet, to tell David that he had a choice of three punishments. Here's his three choices. I find this interesting. Not too many times you see God give three choices, but he gives them three choices. Here they are. Famine for seven years. Three months of being defeated by their enemies or three days of plague. David said in 2 Samuel 24, 14, I'm in great distress. (laughs) Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. That gives you a, a great image there of that God, David was sworn of no. I'm better off being in God's hands because in the end, even if it's hard punishment, he has my best interest in mind. He wants, he's a God of restoration too. So God's judgments are a lot less severe than anything man can hand down. And they're more merciful because God's judgments have our redemption as their goal. Again, like I've said before, you look at the Bible and the 66 books of the Bible, it's one story. The whole story, the theme of the story is the kingdom of God, God wanting relationship with his creation, man, that has free will. Now, I say it that way because he created angels, but there's not the same relationship there. In fact, it says angels don't understand the relationship between us and God. So, so it, that's the main goal. The whole, the, every choice God made in aspiring the books of the Bible, they're all set with a backdrop, the purpose to show the story of God trying to bring right relationship between him and the creation he dearly loves, man. And so God sent this plague to, against Israel, uh, and what this reveals is that there are consequences for our sin, not only for us individually, but also corporately as others suffer as a result. This is something we need to be on the, on the lookout for right now. I am a preacher who will preach grace, but I also know that God brings judgment. And we have to be careful that we are not so focused on grace that we let people uh, believe for a minute that God will not bring judgment when they've trampled on the grace. Our sins have a way of finding us out, and those sins that we think are hidden, God has a way of making them public. I'm fully aware of that. I won't go into my whole story because some of you have heard it so many times, but, you know, I was in Bible school, and I left in not such a good way because my life was not matching up to what I had projected on the outside and I was spiritually dying inside, which allowed Satan to get a foothold and got into sin, and, and then it had to be public. And it's much easier on the forefront, I've learned, 
to just tell people where you're at. And that's why I get criticized a lot. Boy, you just really kind of say everything, Pastor CJ. You kind of put your faults out there. You kind of poke fun at yourself. Well, there's a good reason for that. I used to be a lot more prideful, and I only wanted people to see the good stuff, and I didn't really want myself to be the brunt of any jokes. But it's a good medicine for me because pride was my uh, struggle. So I allow myself and actually welcome to be humbled. Now, if you take it too far, I may have a jab back at you, but, you know, that's, that's the brummet in me. I'm sorry. But, so we try to hide them, but guilt eventually eats us up and changes who we are, and it becomes noticeable. I'm not trying to scare you, but since I've become pastor, some of you, I've been your friend for a long time. Me and Ken go back to age 16, and I'm 42, and I've known Ken for a long time. And I could tell you, Ken would know if I'm trying to buffalo him, if I'm trying to fake him, fake him or there's something wrong in my life. And I've learned that there's something very strange about this office of pastor, that God gives you some discernment to go along with that. You know, he, he, he equips the called. And all of a sudden, when I got into pastoring, it's like I could just sense someone walks in, like something is wrong over there. Something's going wrong. I'm not saying that they're all in sin. They're out, you know, shooting people and burying them in the ditch. I'm not saying that, but they're... There's something there definitely very wrong, you know? And it's okay. You shouldn't walk around me thinking, oh, is God showing him what's going on with me? But the reason God does that is a rescue attempt. He's always going to put someone in your path that's going to try to that's give them discernment to try to look out for you. He doesn't want us to be alone in our struggles. Dr. Wilbur Chapman, a Presbyterian evangelist in the late 19th century, said, it takes the, the look of joy from your face. It takes the peace from your heart and it takes the power from your life. But there's hope. And it comes through confession and repentance. To heal and bring resolution, we don't only need to confess our sins to God, but to one another. And that's the harder thing to do because you can do your confession to God in private. If you're in the Catholic Church, you can go behind a little curtain even in a quiet day in the, in the cathedral when nobody else can hear but the priest. And he's sworn to secrecy. But when you have to go to the person you've done wrong and say, I'm sorry, I've sinned against you. Will you forgive me? That's a whole other story. It scares us to death because we don't like for others to know our business, especially that which is embarrassing. But the very thing we run and hide from is the very thing that will bring us healing. I have no greater respect than a man that will come to me and say, say, Pastor CJ, or before I was Pastor CJ, I need a accountability partner. I've been getting into sites on the internet I shouldn't be looking at. And now I feel like I'm addicted. Will you help me? And I look at that man, I think, you have got something that I wish the world could get a hold of, is you have just tapped into that confession to another brother or sister, if they are trustworthy, not to go gossip, is, is the biggest part of you healing and, and getting yourself right with God is anything. A lot of times we think, oh, I just told God sorry, that's good enough. Well, how's that worked out for you in the past? If someone else doesn't know. Stop for a minute and think about that. Some of your hardest struggles. How does it work for you when God is the only one that knows? I know he has grace. I know that Jesus died on the cross for me. It's so easy for me to take that for granted. But when I tell another brother or sister, they're not God, they're not Jesus, and they don't have that awesome ability to just be able to, to, to be perfect at their response. And you may get it. Oh, my goodness, you're doing what? 
<laughs> you know, hopefully not, but you may get that. And it's so, you're scared of that response. You're scared of what may come of it or how they may think of you or if that blows up in your face. But the apostle James said, confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, James 5, 16. When I left Bible school, my head tucked 1,500 students looking at me like I was the biggest sinner in the world. But I had a dean of students who put his hand on my shoulder, and it's like I could still feel it all these years later. Put his hand on shoulder. I couldn't even look him in the eye at the time, and he said, CJ, don't let this destroy you. God will restore you and get you back better than you were before. Don't let this destroy you. Had I listened to him and not run to the Navy, <laughs> not that I'm not ashamed of my service in the Navy, but that's not where I belonged, and God brought me back out. But had I listened to him, I don't know what the path would have been different, but God could have taken it and done mighty things. He still will, but I delayed myself 20 years. So if you are given this honor to pray for someone, make sure you're faithful and keep the trust. Why pray and ask for forgiveness? Because it's far better to fall into the hands of a merciful God than it is to fall into the hands of sinful man. And so God holds back his wrath until his special healing takes place. I'm not one that wants to bring up and dig up about, you know, this televangelist or this that had the big fallout or whatever. But, but as a case study, if you look at that, because they didn't confess it before it got public, then they were in the hands of the unbelievers who threw the stones hardcore, right? And so what could have been dealt with in the church, what restoration could have been done without them having to face that because they held on to it, longer than they should have, and they tried to deal with it themselves. That's what happened. So what is the ceiling that's talking about? The ceiling, the, the, to understand this question is to understand what a seal is. A seal is a mark of possession, authority, and power. In ancient times, when a document was sealed, wax was dripped upon the document, and the author or owner of the signet ring was pressed into the wax. And whoever read that document knew who wrote it, and whose authority made the decree. It had that seal that said, this is who has stamped this. If you do not have authority over them, you best not break that seal. And such seals also showed ownership on possessions. So God seals these 144,000 with his very own name, and it, which shows that they are the exclusive property of the Lord God himself. And this is revealed later in Revelation in, in chapter 14, verse 1, and when it says, then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on, a mount, on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. So this seal upon their forehead was God's mark of possession and protection. And these 144,000 would be protected from God's wrath when he poured on the earth. The idea is that some, during the tribulation, were going to come to know the Lord, but they weren't these that were sealed. So his wrath was going to impact some, and some we're not, and this is where you can get into difference of opinions from some, but this is what I gathered. So we see this protection during the fifth trumpet judgment. God releases demonic locusts on the earth to torment humanity for five months, and it says in Revelation 9, 4, they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So this mark being placed on their forehead is, is significant. It wasn't an uncommon practice for people to receive such marks on their foreheads as a sign of consecration to a deity. 
signifying they were religious followers. So the forehead was chosen because it's the most obvious. You know, one of the big jokes in the summertime is if you can get somebody sleeping on the beach and get you some good SPF 50 and write a message on their forehead. You know, the reason you do it on the forehead and not the back of the hand is it's not as funny on the back of the hand, is it? Because everyone's going to see it on the forehead. Okay, now you guys are thinking really bad things of me. I didn't come up with that joke, but it is a funny one. Um, so uh, you could put Jesus on their head, and then it'd be okay, right? So the, the forehead was chosen because it was the most conspicuous place and left little doubt as to whom the person served. So this mark being the Heavenly Father's name and that these 144,000 were direct descendants from the 12 tribes of Israel, and since they are called servants of God and later identified with Jesus Christ, it leaves little doubt as these were Jewish believers, followers of Christ. And there's other details that we won't get real heavy into, but they're also called virgins. Um, they never married or have had any um, relations. Uh, this again is seen in Revelation 14. Where it says, these are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. And these were redeemed of, among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. So the idea is there's something different about this 144,000. You know, some will try to say that's all of the believers that will be saved during the tribulation. I don't find that. I find that these were different, that there's reference like there's others, but these were protected from the um, plagues, the things that would come. So, and I believe this purpose of sealing is because they're, they're de- they dedicate their lives to the service of God and the cause of Jesus Christ during the time of the tribulation. The hardest time to do that. Right now, it's easier because we're in a time where the Holy Spirit is moving to and fro the earth and, and we experience His presence here, but there's going to be time when the church is raptured and it's going to be a tougher time to connect with God because then Satan is being loosed on the earth. We think we got it tough now to be a Christian. It's going to be exponentially harder. So as virgins, they commit their lives to Jesus as, their, as the bridegroom and will be ministers of the gospel message to the inhabitants of the earth during this time. So the reason I say this is because I believe the church, those who are the bride of Christ today, those who are ministers of the gospel message will be gone because the rapture will have taken place prior to this event. Otherwise, why create a special body of believers to do what the church has been commissioned and empowered by God to do today anyway? So that would be a replication. Why, why would these 144,000, why would they be sealed if this wasn't during the time of um, the tribulation? And why would God only protect these 144,000 Jewish believers and the church go through his wrath? Which, this is something God promised he would, would not happen. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 10 says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. So it even go against statements that, that God has made in his promises um, if that were the case. So everyone today has a privilege to escape the judgment and wrath of God through belief in Jesus Christ. But when the tribulation comes, those 144,000 Jewish believers will be so, so uh, blessed over the rest because uh, they will, some, they will, those will come to faith during this time. Now imagine... These are ones who did not believe that the Messiah had already come and is coming back. They're becoming, they're becoming believers in the Messiah during the tribulation time. 
So this is a special group of the Jewish believers. So for, for us, God sets his seal with our hearts through the Holy Spirit now. So we see other reference that we are sealed through the Holy Spirit. But I want to talk a minute about this. That's why I rushed through some of this beginning about the 144,000 because really we're going to find out in the end who they are. Um, for me to prove out to you, and if you have a different idea right now, I don't see how beneficial that's going to be for us, really, in our walk between now and eternity. But this is a part that is important. Only though the presence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life today seals and guarantees that they belong to God and will escape God's ultimate judgment and live eternally with him. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And so for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have confession, have confessed the same before others, God tags them by placing the Holy Spirit in their hearts as a seal. They've been stamped, sealed by the Holy Spirit, and are now God's special possession. And as believers, we are owned by God, and we have been purchased by God through the redemption and the price paid by Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. So I'm going to stop there for a moment because right now with reading those scriptures, that's what the scripture says, but there's meaning in that that is taking, taken in different directions depending on how you're raised or what your beliefs are in scripture. But we're going to look at this a little closer. It, said, it talks about that we are therefore no longer our own, but his, and as his, we're under his protection until the great day of his, of his redemption. But Paul goes on to say that the Holy Spirit has also been given as a guarantee of our inheritance. Now, what does that exactly mean? A guarantee of our inheritance. Does that mean that when you receive the Holy Spirit, that now there is nothing else that could, that could ever happen that doesn't guarantee that. Well, on God's end, no. Nothing can ever change. God's end of that. The word guarantee was used in ancient times in commercial transactions, signifying that this is a first installment payment or down payment. In other words, in the way it's used, it's a proportion to the, gray, the price paid in advance for securing legal claim to the item to be purchased, thus sealing the deal. So it's kind of like if you went down to get a loan hate to use this simple analogy for something that's so significant spiritually, but you go to the loan and you plop down that 10% or that 20% of the loan saying, I've guaranteed with this that I am going to purchase this, this item. But in this time, this is looked at, it's a, it's a bigger agreement than that because we all know people default on their loans and they do this and that, but this is a bigger commitment this is a two-way agreement that is promised on both sides, and God seals us from his end. It's up to us accepting being sealed and not abandon that agreement. And this is what, what John 10, 28-30 says. It's talking about when it says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And the Father... I and the Father are one. No one. So here's the agreement. God the Father and you. Okay? 
You've got contractual agreement. On his any promise, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. I will not change on my end. And you're saying, I will freely accept that grace which is given to me, just like the 12 disciples did. When they met Jesus, they were the first Christians. They, they, even though Jesus had not died on the cross yet, they were the ones to form first personal relationship with Christ as a Savior. That's different than Mary as his, her, his mother because there's a relationship growing up, but then he starts his ministry and he gets the first disciples. We just preached about the win, uh, wedding at Cana and he starts to gain disciples of Christ who are the first Christians. So you got these two who made this agreement. Now what about everybody else outside of that? Do they have any claim in that agreement? No. What he's saying is, is he's not saying, and you cannot snatch yourself out of my hand. He's saying, and no one can snatch you out of my hand. In other words, no outside force such as Satan can force us out of God's ownership except one who has been given the free will to leave voluntarily. It's a promise of what God will do on his end for those who are his children when their eternal life is over. It's similar to a picture we see in the parable of the prodigal son. Here's an interesting, interesting twist on this. Have you thought about this? We've covered this topic quite a bit, but the prodigal son was an heir. Keep in mind, the story doesn't start as him as an outsider. He's an heir. He's a son, one of two. But he asked for his inheritance early, and he goes and squanders it. See, we've, we've always looked at that story as if we're equating him as an unbeliever who comes to Christ. But in that scenario, he's already an heir. But he chooses to squander it. And he comes back wanting to just be a servant. And, God, and the father says, no, and he puts the signet ring on him. The seal. He puts the ring on him and makes him an heir once again, which the older brother is mad because now what he squandered is gone and now he gets another cut of the pie. So it's similar to that. But what this, what this script is, is talking about in the modern Greek is used of an engagement ring, promising marriage. The ring itself is not the marriage, only the symbol used to signify the promise to mar- that, that the marriage is made with. So when Jen and I got engaged, I gave her a ring saying, I promise I want to marry you. But I couldn't leave after that and just say, there's the ring, there's the marriage, see ya. It was only that that signifying symbol that I am sealing this relationship that I will not go for no other, that you are it for all eternity. And so... That's what the modern Greek is used as, as like an engagement ring when it's talking about the seal. In fact, uh, the prodigal son, a ring was placed back on the finger to signify he was once again an heir to the inheritance. So in giving those who come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, God is not just promising them a final inheritance of eternity, but is giving them a foretaste of what it will be like. Tonight might be a little more analogies than normal, but... I looked into some of the uh, other sermons on this topic, and one analogy was used. It's like when you put your tongue to the tip of a spoon to taste the flavor of a dish or a sauce that's being served. And I'm not saying that we just get a portion of the Holy Spirit. What I'm saying is the fullness of the Holy Spirit that we'll experience in heaven, that we're just getting a taste right now of what we'll actually get in heaven. It's, it's not that God's full glory is, is here on earth because otherwise there would be no sin now. That he is holding back 
at a point we're still able to usher into the presence of God and worship and, and go straight into the throne room of God. But the giving of the Holy Spirit is just the tip of the iceberg for what we were to experience in heaven. So to say it another way, God's gift of the Holy Spirit is an earnest deposit of a much greater possession to come in heaven. But we can see in Scripture that even some who have tasted of the Holy Spirit will not inherit the kingdom by choice. And here's a passage about that in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. It says that, and this is Jesus speaking with the disciples about what to do if a fellow believer will not turn away from sin and what's to happen to them if they don't. So it says in verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, this is important, you pay attention to this part. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two or if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So what is this saying? Why does it end as it did with this instruction to have nothing to do with an unrepentant brother or sister in Christ? Why, why would it tell us that? And then why does Jesus immediately reference that it will be in heaven just as it was on earth with these matters. Think about how he caps off that discussion. We're talking about a brother and sister in Christ who has come into sin and we've gone to them, they won't repent. and We've taken someone else with them, with us, they won't repent. We've taken them before the church, it's become very public now, they won't repent. And so now we're to have nothing else to do with them. And then he talks about that which we bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then talks about where two or three or more gathered agree. Well, could it be saying that some who have been sealed chose to break the seal themselves? Can Satan break the seal? No. Can other persons break your seal? No. Can an angel break your seal? No. Again, that's what it's talking about in 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 verse John 10, 28-30, it's talking about when it says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given, given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, and the Father and I are one. Otherwise, we have two scriptures that are in conflict. If we... If we don't make that assessment, then we've got to deal with the fact that he's saying no one can snatch him out of the hand of the Father, but yet we have obvious evidence that a believer has continued down a path to choose to, choose to sin and now is being separated from the body. So how can a seal not ever be broken, yet a believer can refuse to repent and end up pushed out of the church, and it says bound in heaven and earth, so they're pushed out of heaven. 1 Corinthians 5, English Standard Version says, Sexual immorality defies the church. 
it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For through absent in the bo- for though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the Lord power, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that, in, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You're to turn him over to Satan so that it might destroy the flesh, the fleshly longings, the fleshly desires, that, that in the end, the day of the Lord, maybe they will be saved in spirit although their body destroyed. So he goes on, um, he goes on uh, to say, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, but then it says, uh, your boasting is not good. You do not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are, are already unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been crucified. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters since, when, since then you would need to go out of the world. So he's saying, I'm not talking about the unbelievers, those in the world. Because if that was the case and we couldn't have anything to do with anybody, we'd need to go out of this world. You couldn't work a job. You couldn't have neighbors. You couldn't have anybody in your life. Because there's only believers and unbelievers. So this statement is saying, I'm not talking about unbelievers. I'm talking about the believers. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an adulterer, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such one. For what I have to do with for what I for what have I to do with judging others, our outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So so we're seeing kind of a building, and this is going back and forth from some text, but let's look at the very next passage in Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. If the dryness of my mouth from the incredible heat in here will let me pronunciate and read um so the parable this is the parable of the unforgiving certain servant in matthew 18 verses 21 through 35 it says then peter came up and said to him lord how often will my brother sin against me and i forgive him as many as 70 times jesus said to him i do not say to you seven times but 77 times therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And then he goes on to tell the story of this servant who owes the king and he begs for mercy because the, the king is getting ready to say, look, you pay up or punishment. And he begs, says, please have mercy on me. I will repay you. And he allows him to do so. But then you know the story, what happens after that. The servant has someone owe him and he has no mercy on him. And so uh, we get down to verse 32 and it says, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. 
And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So with all this in mind, the key here is that repentance and forgiveness uh, to, to those who are sealed, repentance and forgiveness, it's essential to that relationship to that binding contract that should you fall into sin because you will should you get too far into sin and you're having to be in, uh, corrected by your brother or sister in christ what should happen with you well if you ask for forgiveness if you give forgiveness the heavenly father will forgive you and then just like in the story of the master then you'll be cleared of that but otherwise you'll be handed over and then we can go back and we see where it's talking about handing over to Satan when they won't turn. So in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 27, it says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives a prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What is Paul saying? The Apostle Paul is concerned that if he does not run the race as he should, if he does not keep himself disciplined, that he himself may be disqualified. But this is the man that was confronted by Jesus on the Damascus Road. He was struggling with blindness. This is the first missionary that starts a church, and he's saying that I'm concerned that if I, if I don't keep myself under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And then just a few passages over, 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that flowed, that flowed for them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in the sexual immorality that, has, that some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall it's an interesting thing because in this one verse it's taking the old covenant and the new covenant and showing the common thread that relationship with god that personal relationship with god the only difference that he's comparing them to those times of moses was the old covenant and the new covenant yet he's saying look at the ones were they supposed to spend 40, uh, 40 years wandering? No, if they had followed God. Were they supposed to lose over 22,000 
for that, that moment they were going after the idolatrous women? No. It's not willing to, to God that any should perish, but all have eternal life. He's spelling out that some started out and they had that guarantee. They were sealed. They were some of God's children. They were sealed and ready to go. But along the way, they fell. So take heed lest we fall. The whole point of this message is that today is that you can be one of the sealed of the Lord as well, just as the Lord is great. And the tribulation seals that these 144,000 received in order to protect them from the wrath, you can receive seal, uh, be sealed by the Holy Spirit. And this great mystery, as it seems, of the 144,000, and this matter being sealed has caused great controversy over centuries, but in the end it comes down to you're part of the contract. You're part of the contract. God has offered you the relationship. He has offered for anyone who believes the Holy Spirit to come in and then be sealed. I've only covered a fraction of the scriptures that deal with this issue of, of us breaking our, our end of it, but the whole point of the message is that you can be one of those. And if you begin to ignore the Holy Spirit and do not follow Christ, you may find yourself like the prodigal son coming back hoping the door is still open and the chance to be restored is still there. But God seals today all those who come into salvation grace through Jesus Christ. I just want to quickly at the end here read Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 17. I know it's warm in here and we're getting ready to wrap up. It talks about a great multitude from every nation. As I, after I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. It goes on talking about those that he, he sees and we'll get into that a little more next week. But, but the truth of the matter is Christ is coming back. And we don't know whether we have tomorrow, tonight, or we'll be there when he comes back, or if we'll already passed. Some of this with 144,000, we'll find out firsthand one day. Some maybe sooner than others, but we'll find out. But the point is, God has offered you the chance to be sealed, and he wants to keep that relationship with you, and he will never go back on his promises. And if you make that decision, Satan can do his worst, and he can't take you out of his hands. You look at the story of Job, and that's a perfect picture of that. Satan comes to God and says, let me take your man out, and then I'll show you what kind of man he really is. And God says, everything but his life. You do your, do your worst, anything but his life. Job has no privy to this conversation. That's the test. He doesn't know what's coming. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know during it. He doesn't know even right then after. All he knows is that he loves his God, and he's going to serve him no matter what, even through trials. And so Job has the same covenant as one of God's children, sealed. And Satan puts him through it to even his own wife. And you can imagine the man, Job, if he is a man that would be tested like that, he had to have been leading his family to the Lord as well. So his wife has enough. She's not strong enough. She says, curse God and die. And Job won't do it. It's a perfect example that, that the test was God was showing that covenant. Satan can't take you out of his hand. Others can't take you out of his hand. No one can break that covenant between you and God. We're the only ones with the power to do that. We can make the covenant or we can break it, but either way, God has given us the choice. And that's part of the love. I've used this analogy a lot with the new believers and guys in jail. I, they, they're always like, I don't understand. And I've said this before, but I want to drive this home because I want you to use this with those who have these questions. And they ask me, and this has happened a lot, I don't understand if God 
is so powerful. Why did he have to send Jesus to die? Why does it have to be this way? Why can't he just snap his fingers and sin be gone? And I tell them because he would have had to make you a robot with no decision making of your own to accomplish that. He gave man free will. Man chose to listen to Satan. Sin got ushered into the world. And because of that, we're still paying that penalty. And until God comes back for that, that final judgment time, that's the deal we've got to deal with. And again, I tell them, if you think God coming down in a cloud and appearing before you to prove and then you'll just follow him, well, Jesus came, did miracles, and they killed him for it. So that's not going to help you either. This has to be faith in him as the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It has to be that, that he's offered such a great gift that once you accept it, you never want to turn from it and, it won't, and you won't let anything get between you and him. And then he bursts that in your family because then, Ken, all of a sudden you're protective of your wife, right? Because you've been offered that gift and you don't want to see that commitment broken between you and your wife. And so you'll do anything to keep Satan out of your home and out of your business. If it's on your knees praying, if it's fasting, whatever you do, you'll do that. You'll fight for that gift God has given you. And so we do that for unbelieving family members. We do that for, for unbelieving coworkers. We, we offer that same pursuit that God offered us. We pursue them with everything we've got. And we let them know that he loves them and even when they fall, that he still wishes that they be restored and be in right relationship with him. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this time in the book of Revelation. While I have admitted that it's difficult for me, God, that uh, now weeks into this, I, I do find I enjoy it, but at the same time, Lord, uh, I know it's your word and what it does from this point in the hearts of the people here, that's between you and them. And I just trust that I've done right by you and your word. God, I pray that tonight, that if there are any strongholds that the enemy is trying to set up, and Lord, we feel like he is getting ready to rob us, that Lord, we realize the power you've given us as believers, that we will stop listening to the lies of Satan, and that we will, that we will uh, get on our knees before you, Lord. We will pray and intercede. We will fast, whatever it takes to see that the victory is won. Lord, if you didn't give us that choice, what is the battle? What is the fight? We have to choose to pursue you. And I thank you, Lord, that I am among a body of believers who have chosen to fight for their relationship with you. Not that you're running from God. You're there all the time. But they're fighting through all the roadblocks that the enemy tries to, to put in their path, to grow in you, to, to celebrate in you, to to be victorious in you. Strengthen this church. Strengthen us together, Lord. I pray against the attempts of the enemy to get in between any of us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love y'all. Um, thank you for being patient. I will get on the phone with our landlord tomorrow and see if I can figure out this heat and air thing before Sunday. Um, so we, I'm proud of y'all. Everybody stayed awake. Rev, book of the Revelation, and it feels like uh, Hades in here. <laughs> So we survived. <laughs> All right. Love y'all. Have a great night.